This is the account that the Bible gives us of the announcement by Gabriel, the angel, to Mary of the birth of Christ. We're going to be reading starting at verse 26 down through verse 38. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26 down through verse 38. So if you found that, you can follow along. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. The Bible says this. In the sixth month... The angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she also hath conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Let's take a minute and pray before we look at our message this morning. Lord God, again, we come before you and we open your word and submit ourselves to its truth. Lord, you have much to teach us and we have little time on this earth. So I pray that you would just help our attention to be focused on the things that you have for us today. And so, Lord, we want to give you this time. We want to give you ourselves. We submit ourselves to your authority and to your teaching. We need your Holy Spirit to guide us, to illumine us, to help us to understand the things that you have for us from your word. And now I pray that you would use me, that you would empower me with your spirit, with your strength. Give me your wisdom and your words to say so that we might hear you speak to us today through your word. Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want your message to be preached. And we want to be uplifted by your truth. And so we'll give you this place now. Help us, we pray, that you might be glorified in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we... Start or begin the. I don't know if we begin. Some of you had your trees up and decorations probably just after Easter, but we're in the season of celebrating Christmas, and um, we're remembering Jesus Christ. He should not just be the focus at Christmas. He should be the focus all the time. He is the center of everything we do in the church, and he is the reason why we've come together to celebrate not just Christmas, but to celebrate the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. It's all about him, and we have to remember that. We have to remember that every day. This morning, we've been studying John 1 in uh, Sunday school, and we looked at the beginning of John 1. It talks about in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. It talks about how all things were made by him. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so we need to remember and keep that focus as we go through this Christmas season. And here in Luke chapter 1, we have this announcement by the angel that Jesus is about to be born. He comes to Mary and he says, you're going to have a son. It's going to be a supernatural birth. It's not going to be a normal birth. Now at this point, Mary and Joseph were not married. They were betrothed which in Bible times was basically they were contracted to be married, but there was a time period after they were committed to each other that they would wait, and the, and the groom would go and work and prepare a house for them, 
and uh, then at some point would come back and they would be married and they would have the celebration and then they would begin their life as husband and wife. But in Jewish law, they were already considered married and if they were to break this engagement, they would need to have a divorce performed here. Okay, So they were committed but not together yet. And so that's the situation that we have when the angel comes to Mary here. And Mary is probably not more than about 15 or 16 years old at this point in her life. So she's quite young. And she's probably not expecting this at all. She's wondering what God is going to do with her life. She's probably looking forward to becoming a wife and a mother. But not this soon. So this isn't her plan. This is God's plan. And so the angel Gabriel just shows up one day. And he comes and he says to Mary, Fear not, Mary, thou hast found favor with God. And the announcement was made to her about the Lord Jesus Christ being born, that she would be the mother of the Messiah. Now, I don't know what was going through Mary's mind, what thoughts crossed her mind at this point. But as we look at this, the angel's first words to her are, Fear not, Mary. Fear not. And that's a message we all need to remember about situations in our lives. Fear not. God's in control. God's got a plan for all of this. And the angel says, fear not, for thou hast found favor with God. And then he tells her in verse 31 about the conception of Jesus Christ. Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. So she hears for the first time about Becoming the mother of Jesus Christ. And she's probably got a lot of questions at this point. And she asks one later on, how this shall, how this, shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel tells her, it's God's work. God's going to perform this miracle in you. So this is all about the Lord. But he says one thing in describing Jesus Christ. And I want to focus on that today in verse 32. He says in verse 31, I'll give you a running start as we get up to it. The angel's proclamation, he, uh, behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And then look at the phrase in verse 32 that he describes him with. And he shall be great. He shall be great. That sums up everything there is to say about Jesus Christ in that one phrase. He shall be great. That's the truth of who Jesus Christ is. He is great. Now, when we look at that, we use that word great in a lot of ways in our lives. We talk about our favorite recipes and the favorite dishes that we have in the holidays or whatever, our favorite restaurants, and we say, man, those are great. Or we think about a person who we admire in in a way that goes beyond the admiration we have for other people, and we say, man, that's a great person. And yet in that uh, use of the word great, we're actually using a comparative, and we're saying, well, that just means that that dish or that recipe is greater or is better than something else. You know, I like that more. I have a preference for that. Or we have more admiration for this person over another person. And so there's a great greater, greatest for us, right? And so we say, well, something's great, but then sometime in our life we may come across something that we go, well, well, I thought that was great, but this is even better, okay? So for us, it's a a continuous restructuring and reorganizing of what's great in our lives and what becomes better than that. And sometimes the things that we think are great become less great. You know, familiarity breeds contempt, and so, you know, the, I, I remember, and maybe this isn't a great illustration to share with you, but as a kid, I thought Twinkies were like the greatest food in the world. I, I, that was manna. To me, I thought, you know, Twinkies, that's manna. That's what they ate in the wilderness because that was the best thing that ever existed. And as I grew up, you know, it was a long period of time where I didn't have a Twinkie. And then one, I think it was Christmas time, as a joke, Somebody gave me a Twinkie and was like, yep, here it is, you know, that, that great fruit from your childhood. And I was like, so excited. And I opened it up and I took a bite and I was like, wow, that's nothing like I expected it to be. It's not nearly as good as what it used to be when I was a kid. Okay, so we have these experiences in our life where we uphold things that are great because of our perception of them. 
But when the angel uses this phrase here to describe Jesus, there's nothing more he could have said about Jesus Christ that summed up everything that Jesus was in one word. And remember, this is an angel coming to a Hebrew girl. And we have to look at it from the Hebrew perspective. And when the Hebrews use this word great, it means there was nothing better. There never will be anything that will eclipse this. This is the highest honor that you could bestow upon anything or anyone by saying it is great. They didn't have a great, greater, greatest. They had great. That was it. And so if something was great... That was the epitome. That was the highest you could get. And that's exactly what the angel was saying to to Mary here. Jesus shall be the greatest that there ever was and that there ever will be. This man that will be born shall be the highest one. And you see he uses this phrase. Look at the next phrase in verse 32. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Now, the son of the highest means he would, become, he would be literally the son of God. In John chapter 3, we recognize the verse, right? You know the verse, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world, give me the next phrase, that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus was a begotten son. He was born on this earth as a man. But he was the greatest man. So as we look through this description, the angel says he shall be great. And then he describes why he's great. He shall be the son of the highest. The Lord shall give unto him the throne of his father David. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. He will be the greatest person that ever lived on this earth. And not just a person, but he will be God. When Mary questions him, in verse 34, it says, Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How can this happen? I'm not married yet. And I haven't been unfaithful. I don't plan on being unfaithful. How can I have a child? That doesn't work with biology. Okay? There are certain things that have to happen in order for children to be born on this earth. Mary says, Hasn't happened, so I don't know how this can be. And look at the angel's answer in verse 35. The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. He goes on, he says in verse 36, Behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. And verse 37 is the key to all of it. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Why? Because he's great. He's the highest. He's the epitome of everything. He's the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present one. And so with him, nothing shall be impossible. And so he gives her this example in verse 36 of Elizabeth, her cousin Elizabeth was old. She was probably 60 or 70 years old at this point. If you go back and read the first part of Luke chapter 1, it tells about how Elizabeth and um, Zacharias got the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. And that was a miracle that John the Baptist was conceived when his mother was 60 or 70 years old. And here we have another miracle of this virgin young woman conceiving, not being married, not knowing a man. But with God, nothing shall be impossible. So he's great. And it's talking about God altogether, but specifically the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who's going to be born to her. And if we break this passage down, there's several things that the angel tells Mary about the greatness of Jesus Christ. And I just realized I don't have my notes up here, so um, they may be. Scott, could you go look on my desk? I apologize. I knew what the introduction was. I don't want to miss the verses that I'm going to share with you, so he's going to get those for me. Anyway, in verse 
31, Behold, thou shalt conceive, and thy womb shall bring forth a son. Thank you. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. One of the things that he said would make Christ great is the fact that he would be a human being. This is not just, you know, a anomaly, a extraterrestrial, a half-human, half-God. Now, in Greek mythology, they believed at this time that there were demigods, that they believed in many gods, okay, both the Romans and the Greeks, but especially the Greeks, they believed in what were called demigods, and they said the gods of the universe, Zeus, Thor, all of these other gods, came down and married, had relations with human women, and they were born unto them these half-human, half-god people, and they became mighty warriors in the earth. In fact, many people will reference those myths and go all the way back to Genesis 6 when it talks about the sons of God or the angels of heaven coming down and procreating with human women and creating this race of superhumans, if you will. And so many people will look at this virgin birth and say, well, this was an example of the demigod. Jesus Christ was half God, half human. That's not what he's saying here. What the angels said is, you will have a son. He will be human, a 100% human person, a man. And he will be the greatest man that ever lived on this earth. So he is great because he's a man. Now, why is that important? Because if Jesus Christ was not a man, Jesus Christ could not take our place as our Savior. He had to be a man. He had to be 100% man. And so Luke tells us he's conceived as a baby. Even though his mother's a virgin, he's conceived as a baby. He goes through all of the normal uh, gestational period that a human baby would go through. He's born in a normal human way. He grows up as a normal human child. The difference is, the Bible tells us, He's without sin. So that made him a little abnormal compared to every other person. But he's a 100% human being. We have to accept that. The Bible tells us that. In Luke chapter 2, verse 7, in the Christmas account, the Bible says that Mary, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Now, that's probably not a normal birth. Most people wouldn't give birth in a stable and lay their baby in a manger, okay? But that was a circumstance she was in. So even looking at that, he wasn't glorified in his birth as some superhuman. He wasn't glorified in the manner of his birth or in the um, presentation of his birth. Everything happened as a normal human. In fact, they were kind of at the lowest scale of human existence at that point because they were living with animals. Now, I wouldn't want to have my wife give birth to a baby in a stable, okay, at a farm. That's probably not the first place people would choose to have a baby. That's where Jesus was born. And so it brings right away to mind his humility, and that's one of the things that made Christ great. Philippians 2 talks about that, how he gave up everything. He lowered himself and became a servant, a human servant on this earth. But he's a man. He's a human man. In verse 12, in Luke chapter 2, the shepherds were told that they would find what? To go look for a baby. That was the sign. You find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. That's what the angels told them. And so it wasn't that they would find something superhuman, that there was anything extraordinary about this baby, except that they would find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That was their sign. But it was a human baby. At eight days old, Mary and Joseph took Jesus Christ to the temple to be circumcised, just like every other Jewish baby. There was nothing different about his humanity in that sense. He was a human baby. Galatians chapter 4, verses, verse 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. We have to accept and understand and believe that Jesus Christ was 100% human being. He is a man. Because if he wasn't a man, he could not have died on the cross for our sins. 
So Jesus is great in that he was a great man, but he was basically a normal man, yet without sin, the Bible tells us, and that's what separates him and makes him great. We are all subject to temptations. We all go through trials in our life. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest who goes through. He has experienced every temptation that we have experienced. Now think about that. Jesus has experienced every temptation that we have experienced. There's nothing that you can go to God and say, but you don't understand. He understands all of it because he's been through all of it. And again, that phrase, yet without sin, he went through all the temptations. He was tempted in all points like as we are, and yet without sin. And that's why he's a great man. So the child that is born to Mary is a man, but he's a great man, the greatest man that ever lived. But we can't stop there because it's not just that he is a man. He is great because he is God. Look at verse 32 again. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. In verse 35, the angel again says, He shall be called the Son of God. Now, this is not just a reference to his humanity. It's a reference to his divinity. He is great because he is both man and God. He has to be both man and God. I shared this analogy in Sunday school this morning. We were talking about Jesus Christ coming to earth and his own received him not. He became a man. His own received him not. But people will try to explain away the greatness of Jesus Christ or his divinity by saying, you know, when, when Mary had Christ, obviously it was a virgin birth. We can believe that. But, you know, human beings have 26 sets of chromosomes, and Mary has 13, and her the father has 13. So it must have been that there were 13 human genes and 13 divine genes that came together. And so we have this Jesus who is half God, half man. And yet the Bible doesn't teach us that. It says he was all man, and he was 100% God. He has to be. And we have to accept him as both man and God in order for him to be the Savior. Luke refers to him as the Most High, refers to God as the Most High, because that was a familiar Jewish title given to God all through the Old Testament. He was the Supreme One, the Most High God, stressing his majestic, stra- uh, uh, majestic sovereignty. And by the way, this is a title that's used of God all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis 14, verse 18, God is called El Elyon, the Most High God, or God the Supreme One. And here, the angel references the fact that the, most, the power of the Most High, or the Highest One, shall overshadow thee, shall come upon thee, Mary. So this is God that will be born on this earth as a man. Now, I can't explain it any farther than that because we, our minds can't comprehend how can something be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. It's impossible. It doesn't work. We can try to put our minds around this idea of a demigod, half man, half God thing. And that's why people accept the mythology of the Greeks as kind of reality because they can't go beyond that and understand how can something be 100% human and 100% divine at the same time. And that's where faith comes in. The Bible tells us that's who Jesus Christ was, so we have to accept it. But that's part of what makes him great, what makes him exceptional, what makes him go beyond any other person that ever lived on this earth. He was not just a great man. He was the great God come to earth. So Jesus is called the Son of the Most High. He bears the same essence as God in heaven. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is in the exact image of the Father. The verse says, it starts off, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. God has used his Son as his revelation. He says, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express 
image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had purged himself purged our sins sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high jesus christ is this verse tells us the express image of his person the exact nature not a replica of but the substance of the essence of god himself and so we can't diminish that fact in any way jesus christ was the god of heaven the highest one. And the entire Gospel of John focuses on this singular aspect of Christ's life. He's not just a man. He is God, the Son of God. And over and over you see that emphasized. In fact, John chapter 1 starts out that way. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that's why if you go back I'm sorry, if you look at verse 43 of chapter 1, we didn't read that this morning. But Mary goes to visit Elizabeth after she's conceived Jesus Christ. Verse 41, and it came to pass when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost, and she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb. And then look at verse 43, and whence... Is this to me that the mother of my Lord should come unto me? She recognized the divinity of this baby. And she recognized that Mary was not just the mother of some, another human being, another great person. This was God in the flesh. In Luke chapter 2, verse 11, the angel proclaims to the shepherds, Today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior who is what? Christ the Lord. That word Lord is a reference to Jehovah God, the Master, the Almighty One. When the angel comes to Joseph to announce the Christ's birth, the angel says unto him, The child will be called Emmanuel. We sang that song last week, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. There's actually a combination of two words to make that word Emmanuel. It's the word El, which is God in Hebrew. And then the second part means with us. So Emmanuel means God with, God with us. And that's what the angel said, meaning God with us. Jesus Christ, God literally with us in person. Philippians chapter 2, I already referenced this, talks about Jesus Christ. It says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men. God manifest in the flesh. That's the message of John 1.14. He was made flesh and dwelt among us. In 1 Timothy 3.16 It says that God was manifest in the flesh. So this child is not just a great man. He is God. We have to accept that. He is no less than God himself. He is not a lesser version of God. He is not partially God. He is 100% divine. All God come as a man. Without the deity of Christ, this is just another baby that's born. And therefore, we have nothing to celebrate. And we celebrate our birthdays, some of us. I try to forget mine, the age that I'm getting to. I don't want to remind, be reminded that I'm getting older. Okay? But we set aside a day to remember Christ's birth because he wasn't just a normal human child. This was God come in the flesh. So it's worth remembering. What other event in Scripture does God send a whole choir of angels to announce their birth? This was the only one. We sing about these things, these truths, and some of the songs we sing. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. That's God. Yea, Lord, we greet thee, born this happy morning. Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord. See, we recognize in our songs, this is God that we're talking about. Last week we sang, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. In the middle of that song it says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. And it says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. That means God come in the flesh, the incarnate deity. 
O come with us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Again, recognizing Christ, God, with us. So this child is great because he is God, come down in flesh. So he is a man, he is a great man, he is God, he is the great God, but he's also holy, and that's another part that, of this uh, announcement that the angel says makes him great. If you look at verse 35, the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that, what, holy thing or holy child that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Now, I already referenced this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on his holiness because we accept and we claim that Christ was perfect. He was without sin. The Bible tells us that. We have to believe that. He was without sin. He had to be holy, number one, because he was God, but he had to be holy as a person because if he wasn't sinlessly perfect as a person, then he could never have been the sacrifice for us and taken our sin upon him. So his whole life he had to live without sin as a man so that he could become the perfect man to take all the sins of the imperfect people, which is all the rest of us. No one else can claim that they are holy. Nobody except Jesus Christ. Now, I've had six kids. I can promise you that they were not holy when they were born, okay? I have some bald spots in my head from pulling my hair out, trying to raise them. They were not holy. I was not holy. I know, well, my mother called me a holy terror. I don't know if that fits, okay? But I can claim I am not holy. No one is holy. But Jesus Christ was born holy. The angel said, this holy thing, this holy child which shall be born unto you. He was sinless from the very beginning. He was without sin. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 51, when he's David's lamenting his sin with Bathsheba, he he makes this statement to the Lord in his prayer of repentance. He says, in sin did my mother conceive me. David understood all of us are born in sin. We're all cursed by sin right from the very beginning. We can't avoid it. That's why we need a savior. Jesus Christ, although he was 100% human, did not inherit that sin from his mother. God kept that out of him as a person. And it was because he was God that he could not sin, but as a man, he did not sin. So he was a holy person. He was also the holy God. And again, the whole point comes down to without his holiness... We wouldn't have a savior. We cannot believe that Jesus was just a great man or that he was a half man, half God, or that he is God and man, and yet he was just a good person. He had great teaching. We have to believe that he was perfectly sinless on this earth in his human nature, in his human life, and everything he did was in obedience to God, and he did nothing ever that offended God in any way. In fact, that was his mission. He told his disciples and others many times, I have come to do the will of my Father. I don't even make my own choices, he said. I only do that which the Father tells me to do. And that was the presentation to man of his holiness. And so Jesus began in absolute holiness. He was born sinless. He stayed that way his entire life. He's great because he is holy, perfectly without sin, holy. And that's what we have to look forward to. Because Jesus was holy, he is holy, he is going to impute that holiness to us. That's what he wants to build in us as we're on this earth. That's why the the, uh, command goes to us several times in Scripture. Be ye holy as I am holy, God says. Be ye holy because I am holy. God calls us to holiness. But it couldn't be possible without Jesus Christ because he was the perfect holy man as a perfect holy God. Again, we sing about this in our Christmas songs and our carols. O come, O come, Emmanuel says, the morning stars together proclaim thy holy birth. 
We sang this morning, O little town of Bethlehem. And in the, in the second or third verse, it says, O holy child of Bethlehem. We, we confess that Jesus Christ was a holy child, is a holy person, a perfect person. We're going to sing at the close of our, our service, Thou didst leave thy throne. And one of the phrases there says, But in Bethlehem's home was there found nigh, no room for thy holy nativity. Jesus Christ is great because he's holy. He's perfect without sin. The angels in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4 circle round the throne of God in Isaiah's vision and in John's vision. And they both see very similar vision of God's throne and Jesus Christ sitting on it and the angels and the elders circling around God's throne saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And they're not just talking about the Father. They're talking about God, all three persons of God, including God the Son. That's the example and the calling that we have in Jesus Christ. And it's his holiness that makes him great above everybody else, above every other thing. Another thing that makes him great is that he is king. If you look at verse 32 again, going back to Luke chapter 1. He says, and be, the angel, and behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great, he shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Jesus is going to be king. He is king already, but he will be literally king on this earth. Now I mentioned as we were finishing up the song, the last hymn today, so many of our hymns, and even the Christmas carols, make reference to Christ's second coming and his kingdom that he's going to set up on this earth in the millennium. He will literally rule physically on this earth as the king of the earth for a thousand years. But he's already king because he sits on the right hand of the throne of God. And as we saw last week when we were looking at the church at Laodicea, he said in Revelation chapter 3 that those who overcome, I will sit on the throne right next to me. So he already reigns as king. Someday he's going to come and reign on earth for a thousand years as absolute king over everyone and everything. But he says, the angel says he's going to be a king. He's going to rule. But he specifically says he's going to rule on the throne of his father David. God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now, the throne of the father David, that reference is actually in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's what we call the Davidic covenant that God gave to David. And in that Davidic covenant, God told King David, he said, your throne is going to be established forever. No one will ever cease to sit on this throne. Now, physically, we know that didn't happen necessarily. Because David ruled, and then remember Solomon, his son, ruled, and then the kingdom was split, then there were many kings who came and went, and eventually the whole kingdom was destroyed, both the northern and southern kingdoms. Jerusalem was destroyed and overrun by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and then nobody sat on the throne for a long time. In fact, nobody still sits on the throne of David physically. But Christ will, because God gave him the authority to rule, and he will come back, and he will again take the throne of David. And so literally, Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant that God told David, your throne will never cease. There will always be a ruler on that throne. We know Jesus was in the line of David. We can read about his lineage in Scripture. And so he was physically a descendant of David and had the right to sit on the throne of David. In fact, that's why the people crucified him, because when he rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, they hailed him as the king of the Jews. They said, blessed art thou that comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they used as the greeting to the Messiah. And so they recognized him as the Messiah, and yet they forgot or didn't understand that his role at that point was not to come in and set up a physical kingdom. That's what they wanted. His role was to give them spiritual victory in their lives first, and then he would set up his kingdom at another time. But they rejected that. They didn't want the spiritual. All they wanted was the physical. They wanted a physical reign of Christ so that Israel and all the Jews could be lifted up again and be 
the premier ones in the earth. It was all about them. But Jesus didn't come at that time to set up that kingdom. He came at that time to bring spiritual deliverance, and they rejected it. That's why they kicked him to the curb, crucified him, didn't want anything to do with him after that. He didn't fulfill their expectations. But that didn't make any, any less of a king. Spiritually, he is the king. He rules in the hearts and lives of Christians, and he will eventually someday rule on this earth as ultimate king of kings and lord of lords for a thousand years over every person. So Jesus Christ is the king, the magi, the wise men who came from the east. We can figure out a little bit about them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them, but they were probably from the area of Persia. But they were specifically wise men who studied the stars, and they would look at the stars, and each time there was a king born, they would find a star or some symbol of a coming king. Now, I'm sure they knew some of the prophecy of the Old Testament prophets about Jesus coming and about the Messiah and his reign because he was going to be a king. These wise men knew all about kings. They knew all the kings that had been. They were looking for kings to come. They recognized people as kings. They studied genealogies. They knew lineages. And so if someone claimed to be king, they could go back and look at all of those records and say, yes, he rightfully rules and reigns as king. And so when Jesus was born, that's what they were coming to do. They recognized that he was a king, truly, as an earthly king, that he had the right to reign on the throne of David because he was of the lineage of David on both sides, Mary and Joseph. Joseph, we know, wasn't his biological father, but he was his earthly father. And so either way you look at it, Christ had the right to rule, and the wise men came to recognize him as a king, and not just any king, but a special king, because no other time in history had, this, had a king had a star that actually moved and led them to that place. Now, they came to Jerusalem because that was the capital of Israel. That's where they assumed the king would be. That's where Herod was. He was the king, an illegitimate king, but he was the king appointed by Rome over that area at that time. And so they came to him and said, who's this new king? He didn't accept him. He was threatened by Jesus Christ as the king. And because he knew he was an illegitimate king, not necessarily in the line of David. In fact, he was a Hasmonean. But Jesus was in the line of David. So maybe he recognized and thought, if this is a true king that's born, he could take my place and I'll be out of here. We've got to get rid of him. So even Herod recognized his right to rule as king, and yet he didn't want to give up his place for Jesus Christ. When Jesus went before Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king? And Jesus' answer was, you said it. I'm the king. But you don't understand my kingdom because it's not of this world. So Jesus is a king. And in fact, we call Jesus by this title. We we think it's his name, but it's actually a title, Jesus Christ. The word Christ means anointed one. It's a reference to the Messiah, but it's also a reference to his kingship. He's been anointed as the king of kings by the Lord, by God himself. And so Jesus is the anointed one, the Christ. When we say Christ, that means he is the anointed one, the one set up to rule, the one who will be the leader, anointed by God. And now he rules in the hearts and lives of his children and as the head of the church, but someday he will rule on this earth for a thousand years physically, and all who are on the earth will have to submit to his authority. So Jesus is great because he's a king. He is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And again, we sing of this. Angels we have heard on high, it says, Come adore on bended knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn king. The wise men came to worship a king, not just a baby. We have songs, We Three Kings, born in a king in Bethlehem's plain. Gold I bring to crown him again, king forever, ceasing never over the world to reign. Hark the herald angels sing. Again, we sang that last week. Glory to what? The newborn king. See, we have to recognize the kingship of Jesus Christ in order to understand his greatness. He is like no other, and he will be like no other king. 
but he is royalty. He is not just an ordinary child. He is the king. And finally, he references, the angel references with Mary, Jesus' greatness because he's the Savior. If you look at verse 31, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shalt bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that's the announcement to Joseph, and he says, He shall save his people from their sins. Christ didn't just come to rule, Christ came to die. He came to be a savior. The word Jesus is a great name. It means Jehovah saves. It's a New Testament variation of the Old Testament name, Joshua. Yeshua is how the the Jews pronounce it. But it means Jesus saves or the Messiah saves, Jehovah saves. And so when we talk about the Messiah, when the Jews reference Yeshua, we hear that name We're talking about the Savior. This was his purpose in coming to earth, that Jesus came to die for our sins, to be our Savior. In the story in Luke chapter 2, the account of Christ's birth, when the angels come to the shepherds, the announcement of the the angels to the shepherds, they say, unto you is born this day in the city of David, what? A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Not just a person, not a king, a Savior. In fact, here's a challenge for you. That announcement by the shepherds to the angels, I'm sorry, to the shepherd, the angels to the shepherds, that a savior shall be born, that is the only time in the gospels that the word savior appears. There was something special about it. The angels understood. They didn't understand all of the plan. They didn't understand how it was going to work. But they were amazed at the miracle that God was going to perform through Jesus Christ. Later on in Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple where they meet Simeon, an old man, waiting for God's promises before he dies. And in verse 28 of Luke chapter 2, this is Simeon's response in seeing the Lord Jesus Christ as a baby. He says, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. He's basically saying, I can die now. I'm ready to die because I have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. He recognized this was the Savior. This was the promised Messiah. That was Jesus Christ's purpose for coming to earth. But he's not just a Savior to the Jews. He's a Savior to all people. That's the point. Remember again, the message of the angels to the shepherds, the Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He's come to bring peace to all the world. He's a Savior for everybody. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul recognizes this. He says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom he was chief. Now, if Paul was the chiefest of sinners, what does that make us? And we looked at Paul and we think, man, he was one of the greatest Christians that ever lived. And he says, I'm the chiefest of sinners. Christ had to come for me. How much more do all of us need him as a Savior? Luke chapter 19, Jesus himself actually said he was coming to the world to seek and to save those who were lost. That's all of us. We'd all be lost without Jesus Christ. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, John tells us he's the propitiation for our sins not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. He came to save all who would believe because he loved the world. So Jesus came to earth as a baby so that he could die and rise again as our Savior. And we can't miss that. Christmas is not about the baby. We remember his birth, but it's about the greatness of God, about the greatness of Christ. My youngest daughter reminds me of a message I preached maybe last year or the year before. We used to have the Christmas tree sitting right here, and I said, when you see that tree, remember that tree. Because that's why Jesus was born. That was his purpose in coming to earth, to be a savior. Not so we could have a tree, that we could give presents, that we could celebrate, that we could have days off of work. He came to bring salvation. He was a savior, and that's what... We celebrate not just at Christmas time, but every day of our lives as believers. We have a Savior. 
who is Christ the Lord. He is a great Savior because there is no other Savior. There's nobody else who is worthy who could die for us. It was only him. Again, our Christmas carols remind us of that. In silent night, we sing Christ the Savior is born. A little town of Bethlehem, it says, In David's town this day is born of David's line, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. The first Noel says, Then let us all with one accord sing praises to the heavenly Lord, who hath made heaven and earth of naught, and with his blood mankind hath bought. You hear that message all through the Christmas carols. In fact, our hymn book is full of songs that reference Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, his payment for our sin. That's what he came to do, to be our Savior. So Jesus Christ is great because he's our Savior. When Gabriel, Gabriel came and pronounced this birth of Jesus Christ to Mary, he made this one phrase that summed up everything that Jesus was. He shall be great. The greatest. The highest. The perfect man. The perfect and almighty God. The Holy One. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The Savior of the world. All of that is encompassed in that one phrase. He shall be great. And that's why we worship him. That's why we come together every Sunday, not just Christmas time, but every Sunday. Because Jesus Christ is great. He's the greatest one. And all of those who've accepted him as their Savior can sing together, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin, enter in, be born in us today. O come, O come, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. And as we're going to sing in just a moment, O come to my heart, Lord Jesus, there's room in my heart for you, for thee. So as we celebrate Christmas, don't get distracted, don't get sidetracked by all of the other stuff. Celebrate the greatness of Jesus Christ. He is the great one. He is the God of gods, the perfect man, the holy God, the King of kings, and our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to die for us, that we could be reconciled with you, that our sins would be paid for by his death on the cross after living a perfect life. He is our great Savior our great Lord. Let us never forget that. And as we remember that, I pray that we would live for that purpose as well. That the highest one shall overshadow us. That he becomes the one who's made known in our lives. That our life becomes all about proclaiming his greatness to others. So that he becomes the exalted one as he should be in our living, in our speaking, and in everything that we do. Lord, we give you praise, we give you glory. And I pray that you bless us now. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn is 101. Thou didst leave thy throne, thy kingly crown, as thou camest to earth for me, 101. And in this song, if you pay attention to the words, and I hope you do, you'll see reference to his majesty,